0: We have a really special anniversary today. Can anybody guess who it is? Calvary Chapel is 26 years old today. Amazing. Yeah. Seems like yesterday we pulled two minivans up to a little small theater. We had the kids in a beef and beer hall and the rest is history. I cannot believe the ride God has had us on. Uh, We could still tell stories forever. I just want to say a few things. Um, I am highly indebted to the people that we began with. We started as a team that met at my house for about a year. Uh, Church was really birthed out of a Bible study, but this team of leaders got together and uh, we put our offerings together and started Calvary Chapel, never knew what God was going to do. And uh, many of those people are still here. Some have moved on. I want to mention two people. It's going to get me in trouble because of the people I don't mention, Uh, but Pastor Shem was one of those people. and yeah. And I've always said there's things I don't deserve in my life, like I don't deserve my wife, I really don't, and I don't deserve to have a man of this depth of character and uh, on our staff all this time, I really don't. And you see Shem because he's on stage and he's a great listener, and most of you know, some of you counsel with him, but um, there's someone else I want to mention who's unseen. Uh, Martha Parris is the only bookkeeper we've ever had. And you think about it, all these years, she's collected all this money and given it out and missions and payroll and events. And I mean, uh, to have one person do that is, is tremendous. And again, there's so many more people uh, that I could mention. And then I'm indebted to people who, just when we were like getting weary, they came and lifted our hands and gave us a second win. And I can name those people all day, but I just wanna shout out to Bob and Judy Banks who came along 20 years ago. <laughs> Bob had just retired at Sunoco, and rather than kind of go off and, you know, spend his time snorkeling and and what, I guess, what retired people do, he's worked 40 to 60 hours a week for 20 years here. It's been unbelievable. (laughs) Ted and Lori Optenaker have a property in Aston that is just wonderful and I was there a few weeks ago, and I was just telling people, we've married people there, we've buried people there. We haven't actually buried them there, but we've gone there to eat after burying people. Uh, We've had Super Bowl parties there and youth events, and I mean, gosh, it's like uh, a second home for so many people. They open their house on Thanksgiving and Christmas for anybody that has nowhere to go. And so they're just uh, a few people that I'm indebted to. And then finally, I'm indebted to God for this. Uh, We've had our rough patches, right? We're a church, we're people, and you put enough people together, you get problems, and there's spiritual warfare, but I'm so indebted to God from the things we've been spared from. In 26 years, on our staff, among our leaders, we have never had a moral failure. Now, when you talk about a moral failure, you're talking about two things, money and sex, right? We've never had any financial improprieties or any affairs or scandals among our staff in 26 years. And this is important because I I counsel people locally and around the country where they've had this three or four times in senior leadership and below, and this has never happened. And I'm not bragging like we did something right. I'm just saying God has spared us from this. Yeah. He spared us from children and youth ministry. We've never had one thing happen. And uh, you read about these things in the paper, what go on with children and teenagers, Uh, some reason we've been spared from all that. And then finally, I want to give thanks to all the people who have given generously, prayed, served. Every guest speaker that comes here says, look, I don't say this everywhere I go, but something's different here, and that's because of all of you. So if you're new or you're old, we're glad you're here. If you're old, uh, you need to become a new wineskin. If you're new, you're already a new wineskin, and buckle up for the ride. I keep saying it, we're just... Getting started. I think the best is yet to come. I really do. So we're going to do what we've always done, and this is how God has grown this church. We're going to unleash his word one verse at a time. So open your Bibles. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 6 this morning. We're going through John's Gospel. Anna? This
1: is verse 1 through 14 of chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is God's word.
0: Every week in our study of John, I tell you guys the same thing. 90% of what John writes is original. You won't find these signs or miracles in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John has the advantage of reading those Gospels and then dipping back and giving his own kind of spin on stories that were never told to us. They have great significance to him, great spiritual quantity. However, the feeding of the 5,000, that's what this miracle is called, is found in all four Gospels. That's significant, guys. Think about this. The four Gospels uh, tell us very few things together. Obviously, the crucifixion, the resurrection, Jesus' uh, baptism. But for this to be one of the things found in all four Gospels tells us two things. It's very significant. There's a lot of learning here, and then John sees something powerful in it. So um, I'm excited to go through it. It means a lot to me. Uh, It has always meant a lot to me. I've lived my life this way for 36 years, and I'm excited to get into what John tells us because here's what is unique to John John is the only one that gives us the commentary on the miracle. He's the only one that tells us why Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And so uh, there's a lot going on. He he tells us, verse 35 somewhere, I am the bread of life, right? We've heard that seven times in John's gospel. You know, I am the bread of life, I am the door, uh, I am the good shepherd. So we're going to get into all this stuff about bread. And look, we're from Philly, we like bread, right? 17 times in this chapter we're going to talk about bread. It's going to be really cool. Uh, We're going to talk about the last day. Jesus said, I'll raise him up on the last day. What does that mean? It's not his resurrection, it's our resurrection. It's the resurrection of all. So we have 71 verses here. There's a lot to get into. We're going to look at, at it in three weeks. The only thing I want to look at this morning is 14 verses that have meant so much to me. And wherever you are, I think it can change the trajectory of your Christian experience. If you're new in the faith, it's a great day to be here. If you're old in the faith, uh, maybe your remembrance can be triggered. But there's something here we all have to learn, and it's the law of multiplication. Now hear me out on this. The Bible is not a book of rules and principles, okay? It's a book that tells us or invites us into life with God, a relationship with God. But in the Scriptures, there are laws and principles embedded here, that if we understand what they are, they will serve us and others well. And there is one here called the law of multiplication. I'll prove it out to you. Uh, Look at verse 6. Jesus comes to Philip, and he says, where can we buy food? Now, you have to understand what this means, right? Thousands of people are gathered here. And again, this is in all four Gospels. So when the guy sat around at the end of, you know, Jesus' ministry after the resurrection all, When they told stories, this was one of the stories. Hey, remember that day? There were 20,000 people there. Now, they were fishermen, so they had to exaggerate a little, right? We call this evangelastic. So people say, how big's your church? And they give you a number, and you're like, uh, you sure? Yeah, but they're counting like every baby in the nursery, right? So remember that day when everybody got fed? And remember, no one in the crowd knows what's going on. The crowd has no idea. All they think is it's late at night, and we all got fed. But... John and the disciples are mic'd up. Do you ever see that in sports? They mic up the quarterback or the coach. So we get kind of this inside baseball of what's going on. And Jesus says, Philip, where are we going to get food? Philip's like, Are you really thinking about feeding everybody? And it says in verse six, Jesus did this, please understand this, to test him. Now I got to defend God for a minute here. When God tests you, It's not like some gnarly ninth grade algebra teacher on a Monday morning at nine o'clock that says, pop quiz today, because he wants to catch you, right? Because you didn't do your homework. Whenever God tests us, whenever there's a trial, whenever there's a temptation, whenever something happens, he's moving us to higher ground. Have you all experienced that? There's something in there for your growing. I'll give you an example. The great story of Abraham, Genesis 22. Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, thy son that you love, and take him to Moriah, and offer him there as a sacrifice. And we all know the story, right? But the beginning of that chapter says it came to pass that the Lord tested Abraham. And by the end of that story, Abraham knows more about God and more about faith. He becomes the father of all who believes, and in some way saw the death and resurrection of Christ as God himself would provide a sacrifice. So I believe in all of these instances, God has a test for you and me, and it's for our learning and growing. And it says he tested him, and only John tells us this, because Jesus knew what he was about to do. Now, the church has been arguing, theorizing, philosophizing for 2,000 years on something we should And that is, in our life, is God sovereign? In other words, are we puppets on a string? Or are we kind of forging our way through the decisions we make? Now, the argument is necessary, but in some regards, it's silly, right? Because the answer has to be both. Uh, By the way, the idea that I'm making all my decisions scares me to death. I want to know there's a God leading me. I really do. But I also know God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. Jesus knew what he was about to do, but he invites Philip in, and he invites you and me in, and it's a test. And we're going to see how this test rolls out, and, you know, I've pondered this, and I always come back to the same thing. Why in the world did Jesus ask Philip? There's 12 disciples. Let's, Let's be honest. We only know a lot about three of them, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John write scripture. Uh, They're natural-born leaders. I mean, come on, Peter's going to be the first pope. He's well-connected. He's the guy you'd ask, right? But why Philip? You know, if I had to feed maybe 15,000 people, and this is only men that we're counting, and you have women and children, you're probably looking at 15,000. I don't think Philip's the guy I'd go to. But Jesus sees something in Philip. He sees a kernel of something. When he called Philip, Philip ran to Nathanael and said, I found the one, I found the Messiah. And Jesus is going to pull this out of Philip for his growing. Philip, where are we going to get food? Philip says, oh my gosh, 200 denarii, a half a year's wage, $30,000. Like if we had $30,000 and we don't, and if Chick-fil-A was open, and it's not. The best we could do is like three nuggets and two waffle fries. It's not enough. Peter's what we, Philip's what we call a bean counter. Some of you may know bean counters. You may be a bean counter. In your marriage, you might be the bean counter. Every ministry needs a bean counter because ministry leaders come along and say, I got a cool idea. Here's what we're going to do and blah, 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 And the bean counter says, how much is it going to cost? Uh, never thought about that. And the bean counter looks at the money and says, no, I don't, I don't think we can do this. Now, before we come down on Philip, Matthew tells us, All the disciples said, this is a deserted place, the hour is late, and get this, send the people away. Now, I've read a lot about leadership, I lead, and one of the most frustrating things about leadership is this. Leaders carry vision, that's their DNA. They can see farther and longer than most people, way before its time. And the problem as a leader is when you see farther along and there's decisions to be made, you've got to bring people in because you need people and you need capital. And uh, like Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, you just need a lot of things, right? The problem is the minute you tell people vision, they start telling you why it can't be done and why it shouldn't be done. Now it's our 26th anniversary, we started in a little theater, then we went to a school, then a downtown theater, then here, and I can tell you, in every move we made, people said, we should stay where we are, and it's a mistake to go where we're going. And you've got to spend a lot of time, right, convincing people, no, this is the right thing to do. Well, Jesus is at the height of his ministry. Throngs of people are following him. He's got compassion on the sick, he's healing, he's teaching with authority like they've never seen before. And... In another place it says, he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus loved these people. He longed to feed them. And he doesn't want to send them away. He wants them to stay. He wants them to be fed. Out of all the miracles in John, this is the one that I resonate the most with in this season of life. Because what I've learned is the needs of people will always outweigh our ability to meet those needs. Always. Always. There are Sundays I limp out of here. I really do. God, people have cancer, marriages are falling apart, financial troubles, relational troubles. Uh, not only that, the people that aren't here are indifferent towards the gospel. And you know what the only thought in my mind is some days? Send the people home. And we have to point them to Jesus, but sometimes it's like, send them home, God. We, it's to, we don't have enough capital or power or people. Now, Andrew comes along and Andrew says, I got an idea. And every other disciple say, Andrew, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. He goes, I got an idea. I found a kid over here with five loaves and two fish. And the other disciples are like, Are you kidding me? In fact, he's laughing at himself because he says it and he says, bah, But what are these among so many? Like, what are we gonna do? Get our pen knives out and cut up all the fish and loaves into like it's it's a ridiculous idea, obviously. The disciples, and you and me, are prone to something that has gone on for the ages, though God moves mightily, and it's this: a scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality goes something like this: God presents an opportunity. You know, we saw in the video there's adoption, right, or taking care of foster kids, or maybe God wants you to go on a mission trip, or or sponsor someone on a mission trip, or give money to a ministry, or a host of a thousand things. Maybe there's a problem in your life, or God wants you to go to higher ground. And you know God's calling, right? We all hear his voice, right? Like for me, things come in threes. And I know it's God, and then with a scarcity mentality, when God calls, we only look at our ability. We look at our wallet, we look at our bank account, we look at our abilities, we look at our talents, and we say, no way, God, I can't do it. That's a scarcity mentality. What amazes me, and it happens to me, is we forget all God has done. These disciples were at Cana, where they ran out of wine, and Jesus turned the water into wine. you think that was a lesson they would never forget. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he said, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. He said, I didn't say I'm the God that created the world, which is pretty powerful. He said, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. In other words, I brought you out of a superpower with no standing army. And I fed you for manna for 40 years. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Look through the rearview mirror. Remember all of my blessings. Jesus' response, verse 10, have the people sit down. Now, Mark tells us they sat in 50s and 100s. That's like a sub miracle. 12 disciples sitting, 15,000 people in 50s and 100s. I'd love to see it. I'd hire every one of them. (laughs) Verse 11 says Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and disciples to those who were sitting down, and likewise the fish. And verse 11 says they had much as they needed. Everybody had to their fill, no scarcity. And there was fragments left, and the crowd had no idea how this had happened. Now, the following day, we're going to find out they're following Jesus because of this miracle. that reminds them of the manna they had read about. I want to give you three principles of the law of multiplication, and i lived this my entire life. And uh, on my sabbatical, after about five weeks, I felt like a fog lifted. And I realized, oh my gosh, a scarcity mentality after all these years had creeped back into my life. And so, I've been working through a lot of this, and God speaks to me in three. So, three keys to the law of multiplication. Number one, only what is given can multiply. Only what is given can multiply. Do you know why this is a law? Because God's a giver. God's the ultimate giver. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He can give you scads of verses. i will give you one from the old, one from the new. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 11.1. Cast your bread upon the waters. For you will find them in many days. Give a serving to seven or eight, for you don't know what will come on the earth. In other words, Solomon is saying, look, hard times are coming. Be generous, because one day you'll need generosity. Jesus said it better in Luke. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, running together, shaken together. Men will give to you. Here's the key. For with the measure you use, men will give back to you. God said you could actually pick the measure. In other words, if you want people to give to you liberally, then be generous. Give liberally. If you want people to be stingy towards you, then you be stingy. Uh, This is a wonderful principle. And again, Monica and I have lived by this our whole entire life. Uh, Mark Batterson just wrote a book called Double Blessing. I read all Mark's books. I've had coffee with him several times had no idea this was what he was writing about, but it kind of fit where I was as the fog was lifting. And Mark's like an infectious guy. I was down at uh, Ebenezer's Coffee House, National Community Church. They bought a little coffee house uh, about three blocks from the Capitol because where are you going to buy land for a church in Washington, D.C., right? So they, So they bought this little coffee house in a gentrifying neighborhood, and they had church in the basement. Today, now they own a dream center where they serve underprivileged children, And adults in the D.C. community, they meet in seven movie theaters on Sunday mornings in the Beltway and still in that little church on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Mark thought his books would sell about 5,000 copies. He sold way over 5 million. And he just writes about all that God has done all these years. He writes about 2 Corinthians 8 where, if you know the story, Paul comes to the church in Macedonia. What we now know is upper part of Greece. And he praises that church for giving liberally and out of their poverty. And he said, since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in uh, love and kindness, now see you excel in this grace of giving. When you become a Christian, you have a closed fist. And when you come to Christ, God opens that fist. The reason he opens it is because now you now realize everything you have is from God and everything goes back to God and watch this, he resupplies. And you kind of get into this thing with God, like the Macedonian church. Mark Batterson said, if you allow a scarcity mentality to take root, you become like the servant who buried his talent in the ground. You become a cul-de-sac of blessing, and the blessing dead ends with you, simply put, enough will be enough, never be enough. And guess what? You'll never have any stories to tell. You'll never have any stories to tell. I could tell story after story after story in my life and this church of God's provision. And God wants us to tell stories. The second law of multiplication is a very important one. It's never about how much we have to offer, but will we offer whatever we have. It's never about how much we have to offer, but are we willing to offer whatever we have. Um, every once in a while, you got to go to 1 Kings 17 and talk about Elijah. Elijah is this unbelievable prophet. And um, God tells him to go to this widow. And he goes to this widow, and uh, in 1 Kings 17, he says to her, "Uh, I want you to make me a cake. And she says, as the Lord lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour and a little oil. I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we might eat it and die. Does she have a scarcity mentality or an abundance mentality? Scarcity, right? They're going to eat this cake and die. She's looking at her own resources. Elijah said, no, don't fear. Go and do do as you have said. Make a small cake from it. Bring it to me, and afterward, make some for yourself and your son. In other words, give it to God first. For thus says the Lord of God of Israel, the bin of flour should not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. There had been a famine. So she went away and did all according to all Elijah had said, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Elijah. And that's just one of many stories. The widow with two mites, the boy with five loaves and two fish, Now, we all know Jesus didn't need the boy, right? He didn't need the disciples, he didn't need the boy, he didn't need the loaves, he didn't need the fish. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Satan understands, he said, look, you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. You don't need fish and bread. The stones can become bread. Not only that, he can create out of nothing. Well, let there be bread, and there would have been bread, and everyone would have been fed. It's in the pathway of obedience that faith is accelerated. The woman obeyed and saw God's provision. The little boy obeyed, gave what he had. He was willing, saw God's provision. When Monica and I became Christians, we had two kids very early. We lived in a basement apartment. Sometimes we had one car, sometimes we had no car. We could tell you story after story of God refilling and God's provision. We were so excited about the gospel. We had people in our little apartment. I remember somebody coming to us one time and said, look, you either need to get a bigger apartment or invite less people. We never complained, people at church never knew what we were going through, never made decisions on money. Fast forward many, many years later, we had purchased this property, and we were about to build this building. And I was in media, I don't know why the closing was there, signing the mortgage papers for $3.5 million, and I'm signing all these papers, and there's a window there. And I look out the window, and I could see the acme in media, and here's why it was significant. It was like a moment in time, I was frozen. That was the Acme where we used to shop. We had one car. So Monica, and I'm not an old guy telling these stories about going uphill six miles in the snow, but this is true. Monica would take our two kids that were toddlers, walk a legitimate mile, food shop, take the cart home, and then when I got home, I'd take the cart back. And I'm looking out a window, signing mortgage papers, for $3.5 million for a church building. This dream we had in a basement apartment, God had multiplied, and God reminded me there. When we were in the media theater, we had a million dollars in the bank. Might sound like a lot of money, but when you're trying to buy land and build buildings, it's a pittance. And we had a million dollars in the bank, and we could have kept renting a million dollars in the bank. Life would have been easy. And God said, no, leverage that for 24 acres here, and we did. And we got here, we barely made it, our classrooms weren't finished, we were cutting the grass, weeding as a staff, and sometimes later, we were now here in this building, had a million dollars in the bank again. See how it works? You have to give what God asks, and then God resupplies. See, general math, when you look at your own resources, is five plus two equals seven. Kingdom math is five plus two equals 5,000. Remainder of 12. Remember remainders? <laughs> My granddaughters go through remainders. I don't know where that applies in life except here. Remainder of 12. Now commentators go crazy with this. Well, the disciples all got a little lunch pail. It was a little lesson for them. Or the 12 tribes of Israel. You can go on and on with that. But, but are you willing to give what God asks? And again, it's not about the number. Paul in 1 Corinthians said, you can give millions of dollars, your body to be burned. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for obedience. Uh, Where this really hits home is when Scott Harrison was here, and when he was talking about charity water, and I was just amazed, because Scott has so many stories to tell. And he told that story about how he gave up his birthday, right? He told all his friends, look, I don't need anything. Give all the money to charity water. And, uh, and then that kind of got out of control. There's a, guy, a kid named Max in Texas went door to door asking for $7 on his birthday and raised 22000 There was an 89-year-old woman who was asking everybody for $89. She raised tens of thousands. By the time the campaign was over, they raised $159,000. It's unbelievable. But that's what God could do when you're looking at his resources and the law of multiplication. Now the problem with all this Uh, was figured out a long time ago. Soren Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards. The problem is you have to live it forward. So when I'm in that media apartment, I have no idea this day is coming. And now that I'm in this day, I don't know what the next day is. I still have to trust God and be willing to give whatever he has. Third law of multiplication is something must be blessed before it can multiply. In other words, you've got to give it to Jesus. That's got to be the sole motivation. There's a law of first fruits in the Bible. It says the first fruit is holy. Now, that means set apart. So we're not farmers in here. I'm pretty sure there's probably a couple. But the farmers would get a harvest. And it was tempting to keep the first fruits because you didn't know if the rest was coming in. God said, no, 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 give me the first fruits. Give me the first. Give me the best. Right off the top. It was a sign of trust that God said, I'll give you the rest. I'll open up the windows of heaven. Mark Batterson said, what God does for us is never just for us. It's ultimately for others. Like the feeding of the 5,000, miraculously, there was more food left over than they started with. That's what happens when you take what you have in your hands and put it in the hands of God. People with an abundance mentality don't direct deposits, God blessings into a savings account. They open a brokerage account and reinvest the dividends in others. They don't just love to give. Y'all listen to this? They live to give. And let me say this. This is not the prosperity gospel. I know more about, I'm going to brag for a minute. I know more about the prosperity gospel than I'll bet you almost anybody in the country. Because I got saved into it. I give you every verse, every teaching, every book for it against it. I'll tell you all the teachers. It's all bunk. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is a God of abundance who longs for us to get in the game. Listen, he knows what he's going to do. He's going to bless others. God's going to feed others, bless others, but he wants you involved in the blessing, like Philip, to be involved. He's testing you. He's building your faith. Here's where the rubber meets the road. In a few years, Jesus would die on a cross and rise from the dead. He had 12, 11 men. Judas betrayed him. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Every creature, every nation. And you have to remember, religion today is still localized. I know we live in a globalized world, but Christianity is the only global religion. Uh, Religion was localized. You know, the Greeks kind of Hellenized the world and some of those gods shifted, but by and large, religion was always local. Now Jesus is telling 11 guys, most of them fishermen, yeah, you're going to reach every nation. And if they had a scarcity mentality, they would have looked at a business plan and their resources and nothing would have ever happened. Instead, he said, look, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall. And when the Spirit fell in Acts, they understood the law of multiplication. 120 men in the upper room became 3,000 and 5,000. And by the book of Acts, he said, are these the men who have turned the world upside down? And of course, the West has been created and the rest is history. What's interesting is, where do we fi- find Philip in Acts? In Acts chapter 8, he's in Gaza. And God taps him on the shoulder and says, Philip, I want you to go to Samaria. He goes to Samaria, and there's a large caravan there where their Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 55. What a setup. And he jumps in the chariot, and you know, the Ethiopian eunuch is, who's this man speaking of, himself or someone else? He tells him about Jesus. The guy gets baptized. And we don't know it, and we'll never know it until heaven. But is this the word of God that eventually came to Ethiopia and Africa, and how many were saved in North Africa? We'll never know. Extra-biblical literature tells us that Philip eventually went to what now is Russia and what now is France. He understood, like the rest of the disciples, the law of multiplication. Fast forward to our day. Here we sit once again where we're hearing the death cry of the church in the West. God is dead. We're a post-modern, post-Christian, secularized culture. Uh, millennials are leaving in droves, and the ones that are staying are never going to give like the fathers and grandfathers did and yada, yada, yada. And now we've got groups like Borna that give us all the facts, right? And the facts are, you know, I read it all. The facts are correct. I, I get it. And I I read all this because I'm supposed to. And then I sit back, and I think about 1968 and 1969. I was only seven years old. But even as a seven-year-old, I knew it was a dark time. Uh, When I walked the streets of Philadelphia, everybody had long hair, right? It was the the height of the hippie generation. Remember all the painted vans, drugs, Go Ask Alice. Uh, Charles Manson had just killed people. Rolling Stones at Altamont. Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King were killed. Vietnam was raging, 20% interest rates. Now, I wasn't a believer then, and I don't know what church leaders were thinking, but I'm sure they were thinking, this is the end of the church. But can I tell you, God always knows what he's about to do. (laughs) And he always invites us in. And he invites in a balding, middle-aged man with a church of 50 people called Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, who opens his door to the hippies and it becomes the epicenter of what we know is the Jesus Movement. Now listen, the Jesus Movement's in Acts, the Jesus Movement's now, the Jesus Movement's whenever God's doing anything, right? But this is called the Jesus Movement. It's one of the great revivals of the last century. And not only what happened at Calvary Chapel, but at Colorado and Chicago with Jesus people and Nashville with Don Finto and and. and, The Catholic Charismatics, God blew through the Catholic Church. Look up on the screen at these pictures. These are baptisms at Pirate's Cove in Corona Del Mar. I think we have several pictures. This was on Life Magazine. The heart of 1968, 1969. This is what God decided to do. Now, am I looking back at some nostalgic period? No, I'm just telling you, at the darkest time, the dawn is coming. And so when all these pundits say how dark it is, they're right. But what's God about to do? I don't know. Can God indeed bless America again? I don't know. I know that God wants to seek and save all that is lost. I know that God wants to fill this place. The question we should be asking is, what am I willing to give? What am I willing to give? I am so satisfied with 26 years, but this this really isn't what I signed up for. I've always said this is about what you should do if you just be obedient to God. I'm holding out for something like that. I'm holding out for something that only God can do. And uh, I hear so many of you saying, oh my gosh, the church is so big, I can't know anybody. I'm praying against you, by the way. If you're praying that the church is getting smaller, you better start praying with me. I'm praying it gets larger. More services, more campuses. Uh, I want people out there to be in here. We'll find ways to get smaller. Look, we lit fires today. There's bleachers out there. Go sit with somebody to fire. You'll get smaller. But we need to get larger. And the question's always, what are we willing to give? I'm sure before 1968 and 69, there were people that prayed and gave and sacrificed. I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was going to be a medical doctor, not only a medical doctor, but he would eventually be the doctor to the Queen of England, and chucked all that to go into the ministry and changed most of England, and we could tell story after story. It's not about the culture, it's about what is the Holy Spirit about to do? What is the Holy Spirit about to do? G.K. Chesterton said at least five times the faith in all appearances had gone to the dogs. But in each of the five cases, it was the dog that died. I love what Oz Guinness said in his book, The Power of the Gospel in Dark Times. He said it's our privilege to have at our disposal the lessons of 2,000 years of the church's engagement with culture. The chief lesson of the last 2,000 years is that there is no one Christian culture and there is no perfect Christian culture. There is no golden age behind us. Our golden age lies ahead when and only when our Lord returns. That's what we're looking for the return of Christ. Now, it's not a cop out. The Bible says, occupy till he comes. We're going to get at it until he comes. But the golden age we're all looking for is when that sky splits and he returns.